Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Price of Victory. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Motivation for Giving. This matter of giving our finances, it's a tricky thing. You know, I once read a story from a lot of years ago, and it took place in Scotland. It happened during a worship service. As an offering plate was being handed out, one man accidentally put a crown piece in the offering plate instead of the penny he had intended to put in. And when he realized what he'd done, well, he was horrified by the loss. And so he called the usher back and quietly told him his mistake and asked for his money back. Well, the usher simply said, in once, in forever. He meant once you put it in, it's not yours anymore. Well, it was just morning, but it was turning out to be a very bad day. And so the man who had made the mistake, you know, still speaking to the usher, simply shrugged his shoulders and he said, well, I guess I'm going to get credit for it in heaven. And without even a hesitation, the usher said, no, you'll get credit for the penny. That is, God looks not on the amount, but on the intent of your heart. (laughs) It had turned out to be a very bad day indeed. Well, it's a funny story, at least I think it is. Perhaps you disagree and think it's a tragedy. I once knew a man who was fairly rich, and he told of the very first time he had ever gave into the offering plate as it came by in church. He'd recently come to Christ, and he had started to attend church. It was a new experience for him. He'd, He'd watched the offering plate come by on several occasions, and up to that moment, he'd never put in anything. But on this one occasion, he threw in $20. And as he watched his $20 disappear as it went down the row and into the aisle, he felt like he had just had his arm cut off. He hadn't purchased a thing and he hadn't invested a thing. He just thrown $20 away into a basket. Now it was gone. He said it took him time to get over his feelings on that moment. Just as an aside, yeah, that man eventually became a very generous giver. But that first time, It just hurt like fury. Well, let's all have a good laugh about that. We need it. We need to laugh at our own attitudes about money and take ourselves a little less seriously than we ever have before. We've been looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and the chapter started out with Paul's reminder to that church that on a previous occasion, they had made a commitment to give to a special project. Many of the believers in Jerusalem were suffering extreme poverty, Paul was deeply concerned for the plight of Jewish Christians, and he, the missionary to the Gentiles, believed that the Gentiles who had received the gospel from Jewish Christians now owed the Jewish Christians a response of love. And that was the scenario. But as we've already pointed out, this special giving project had come to a halt because of the inner turmoil in the Corinthian church. But now things had changed. And because it had, Paul needed to get the church back to their earlier commitment. And as a way of introducing that subject, Paul began by talking about what other churches had done. But now it was time to bring the matter to a conclusion. And it is at this point that Paul addresses the matter of motivation. And it's an interesting question. What motivated that man I've already mentioned to give his first $20 into the offering plate? And what motivated him from there to become a generous giver? And it's to this matter of motivation that we now turn. So I hope you have your Bible, so let's start to read. Indeed, let's go back to Paul's words that we've already read yesterday, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That is, see that you excel in the grace of giving generously. Now, having said that, we come to today's text. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. That is, when Paul says, see that you excel in the grace of giving, he then adds, I'm not saying it as a command. I know some of you are saying, great, there's no command to give generously. It's only an urging. So let me clarify. What we've been talking about is not the regular offering of the church. It's a special project. There is no command to give beyond our regular tithes and offerings, none at all. So let's be clear. Apostolic authority, or when Paul, the apostle, gives a command, that authority that Paul has to command the church to do something, that authority is derived from the explicit teaching of Jesus and from Scripture. And I need to stop here because it's an essential matter. Any local pastor, or for that matter, a Bible teacher as I am, has no authority on his own. Sure, I have opinions on all sorts of things, as does your pastor, as does any seminary professor, but those opinions are no greater than anyone else's opinions. It's an opinion. But when Paul gave a command, it's because it had come directly from the mouth of Jesus in his life and teachings and also in the, in the Scripture and also in Jesus' physical appearances to Paul. And that's how Paul got his unique authority. And and Paul's now being honest. I have no authority on this matter to command you to give to this special project, none at all. However, he's then quick to add, I'm talking about this offering and the sacrificial commitment that the Macedonian believers have already made. And furthermore, I want to probe whether your love for the needy Jerusalem Christians is genuine or not. Now, I know some of you are going to say, that's not fair. I don't have a command, but I want to see if you're a loving person. You know, it seems so manipulative, doesn't it? But remember that it was the Corinthians themselves who earlier had made a commitment to give to this project. Now is the time to find out if they were simply talking the talk or walking the walk. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, we really love those desperate Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are at the point of crisis and we're going to do something about it. But then when they do nothing, is that not a test of genuineness or a test of love? See, look at it this way. In our day, the phrase virtue signaling has become very popular. It means we express support for a popular cause in our day, but we do nothing about it. It works for Christians as well, you know. I believe my pastor should be paid well. I believe the gospel has to be heard throughout this country. I believe that we should be doing more for persecuted Christians around the world. I believe we should care for the needy. On and on it goes. We're signaling our support. Now, there comes a time to test the genuineness of those statements. And so with that in mind, Paul gives three motivations that might bring us to discern if all this virtue signaling is genuine love or not. Here's the first motivation. It's the example of Jesus. It's found in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So let's consider the first part of that statement. Though Jesus was rich, he became poor. And those words sound very similar to words Paul wrote in Philippians 2. 
who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And then later, Paul adds that the condescension of the Son became so overwhelming and oh, so over the top in its humiliation that, that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death on the cross. That is to say, from the one who shared fully in the nature of God, from the one who eternally existed, and the one who dwells in ineffable light, from this one to this, from unimaginable splendor to incomprehensible disgrace. That's what Paul teaches in Philippians. Now, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul merely had to say, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That is, this condescension was done for your sake. You know, sometimes we're content only to be overwhelmed with the sacrifice of Jesus. And we should be overwhelmed by the sacrifice of Jesus. But does his sacrifice have something to say in the way we live our lives? Yes or no? Even in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Jesus' humiliation is to be emulated by us. Have this mind among you, he says, that was also in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul wants the believers in Corinth to consider this when they think about how they should respond to the crisis that Jewish believers were then facing. But what means the second half of this equation? He became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, there are those, especially among the prosperity gospel folks, who argue that Jesus humbled himself so that we can buy, you know, fancy cars and houses and private jets and any other fancy thing we want. He became poor, they say, so that we can become rich. And so to honor Jesus, we have an obligation to become rich. I hardly know how to respond. But of course, that can't be what Paul has in mind. Remember, he's trying to provide the Corinthian Christians with motivation for giving sacrificially. And so if Paul meant to say, Jesus wants everyone to get rich in this world, well then, giving sacrificially doesn't really get you there, no matter what the prosperity preachers say. I remember hearing one story of a prosperity preacher saying to everyone around him that he had given everything he had away and then God had restored it tenfold. To which someone in the crowd shouted out, dare you to do it again? Indeed. Well then, what kind of wealth does Paul have in mind? What kind of riches does Jesus promise his people? Offering Bible teaching resources that provide relevant biblical truth is at the core of the mission and ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Well, this month, we're giving away Dr. John Newfelt's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, many Christians don't embrace all that is provided for them in Christ. Benefits such as our adoption, the Holy Spirit, and what so many struggle with, the assurance of our salvation. Dr. John's book presents 10 of the incredible benefits that come by way of our salvation for each of God's people. So make the point of calling and asking for your free copy today. These are biblical truths that need to be understood. Call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free copy of Making the Most of Your Salvation. And please continue to stand with us in 2021. Paul has been teaching the Corinthians that when it comes to giving, they ought to imitate Jesus. He, though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. 
Paul means to teach the Corinthians that they ought to give up material riches to gain the riches of heaven. You know, for Jesus, his riches were in the realm of the heavenlies. And so for us, it is also in the life to come. Even as Jesus gave himself unto death and has in consequence inherited the greatest of all names, we too should follow his example. Give up everything this world has to offer and place your hope in the riches to come. Now, before we move on, let's be clear. The Bible does not condemn the rich per se. You know, the gospel is full of rich people. Joseph of Arimathea is the man who placed the body of Jesus into a rich man's tomb. 1 Timothy chapter 6 doesn't condemn rich Christians. Instead, it simply gives them commands for appropriate behavior. Don't be haughty, it says. Don't be arrogant. Don't throw your power around. Instead, do good. Be generous. Be ready to share. And so the rich aren't condemned in the Bible. But when they confess Christ, they are made into the people of God. But, says Paul, be generous. Now, 2 Corinthians, we find that following the example of Jesus, it's a mandate for all of us, rich or poor. And so in providing motivation for giving, Paul says to the believers, follow the example of Jesus. Now comes his second motivation. Keep the commitments you've already made. Talk the talk, walk the walk, say and do, so that when you speak, you're authentic in what you say. So let's read 2 Corinthians 8, 10 to 11. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that it was, in fact, a year ago that they had made a commitment to give. Paul had been deeply encouraged by them then. And furthermore, it wasn't that they were browbeaten into making this pledge. Indeed, they were eager. They were desiring to do it. You know, it's a mark of consistency, of authenticity that we follow through. Now, notice Paul says, as you follow through, this benefits you. Now, we might want to think about how that's so. How does following through on our commitments benefit the one who follows through? Well, for one, they get a reputation of trustworthiness. When they speak, people take them seriously because they see truthfulness in them. Psalm 15 is a psalm extolling the virtues of the person who walks blamelessly. The psalm gives a list of all the attributes of the blameless man. He doesn't slander others. He only speaks the truth. He does no evil to his neighbor, so forth. But in verse 4, one of those virtues are described as follows. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. That is, when he promises something, his word is his bond. Even if things change in the future so that what he's promised becomes an inconvenience and even a burden, his word remains steadfast. That, says Paul, is to your advantage. It benefits you. We might want to apply that to our own lives. Have you pledged to give to a cause, and then have you walked back that pledge? Paul says, that's no benefit to you at all. You know, very well, Paul has given us now two motivations for the Corinthian Christians to give. First, they're to consider the example of Jesus, and then they are to keep their word because it benefits them. But now comes the third motivation. A sense of solidarity exists among believers as we all do our part. So we're going to read all the way from verses 12 to 15, but let's examine this argument slowly. Start with verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
Now, from that verse, you should be able to see what Paul's getting at. We might call this proportional giving. That is, he's urging all the believers to give according to or proportional to their wealth. Again, we do well to note this is not a passage about tithes. You know, I've said it before, and I need to repeat it here. Please remember, this is a special offering. It's a special project. It's not a regular act of giving. But but even here, in a special project, Paul encourages giving according to what a person has. And that's the principle of the tithe. It's a percentage on income. The tithe does not refer to the amount we give, rather to the percentage of what we have. It's an interesting principle. I've noticed in my lifetime that tithing has been a valuable instructive tool for me. And what I'm about to say might surprise you. See, when I was young, newly married, my wage was really quite minimal. It was often a struggle just to get by. And Kathy and I committed it even in those days that we'd always give a 10% of our income. We did. Now, here's where the surprise comes in. When my income grew and I was finally in a position to have a little more, Tithing actually became harder, not easier. And what I mean is, I began to notice that the amount I was giving was increasing, and it seemed to me I was giving a great deal. I mean, could I actually afford that? But I had to remind myself over and over again of the truth of the matter. I wasn't giving more at all. I was giving what I'd always given. It was exactly the same. It was proportional giving that taught me that. If I had merely concentrated on the amount, I'd never have understood that. Proportional giving taught me the truth about my giving. And that's what Paul has in mind here. A person gives according to what he has, not according to what he doesn't have. So let's continue to read because in the next two verses, Paul will take that principle of proportionality and speak about fairness. Verses 13 and 14. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Now, these verses go beyond the matter of proportionality. Paul's anticipating, as some are giving proportionally, that a complaint is likely to arise. And the complaint goes like this. You know, if I give my hard-earned money to those needy Christians in Jerusalem, aren't they profiting from my hard work? And so Paul writes to allay that concern. He's not wanting anyone to get rich off of another person. It's a matter of fairness, and, and he talks about it. He takes into account that Christians really need to be concerned about one another's well-being. See, back in 1 Corinthians 12, speaking about spiritual gifts, Paul had said there, when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. See, we're bound to each other. We really are our brother's keeper. And so when one part of the body of Christ is in need, the abundance of those whom God has blessed should be used to care for others. And when the situation is reversed, then the one who now has more can help the other. Ah, but still, you know, I can hear the present day complaint. I mean, won't this just create a permanent welfare state among some who are always looking for handouts from fellow believers? Yeah, that's a danger. And Paul deals with that danger in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, where he lays down a rule for all Christians. He said there, if someone is not willing to work, let him not eat. No, there will be no room for those who try to abuse the generosity of fellow believers and for those who are lazy. 
Paul's not presenting the Jerusalem Christians as a people group who will always need to be supported. This isn't welfare. This is money to get them on their feet. You know, years ago, I was speaking to a group of young pastoral students in a very poor nation. And the president of that Bible college introduced himself at the open session and then made a comment. I never forget it. He said to the students, I absolutely forbid any of you from asking for money from our guest. And then turning to me, he said, I forbid you from giving money to any of these students. Well, I asked him about that later, and he told me his conviction. Too many people from the West had already showed up, and they'd picked their favorite pastor rather than giving in a way in which there could be fairness, equitably distributed, overseen properly by those who were both responsible and knew the situation well. He would not allow his pastoral students to become professional beggars, he said. And Paul wants to assure the Corinthians this isn't a welfare program. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. By the way, that's a quote from Exodus 16, verse 18, and it had to do with God's provision of manna while Israel was in the wilderness. God did not give manna so that some people would hoard it up and other people would go without. It was given so all God's people could be properly supplied. And that's why God gives his people resources and money and wealth. It's never given so that we can simply pile it up in a big heap. It's rather so that we could show our concern for one another. Our money really can do that. It really can help us imitate Christ, keep our commitments, and express our sense of solidarity for one another. That's good motivation for giving. Thanks, John. You know, there's no question of the need to give, and we see that every day on TV, on the streets. But are we really expected to give, even particularly today when things are difficult, sacrificially, even when it hurts? Yeah, I, I think um, if we wait until things are just right, our, our finances are in an appropriate uh, position so that we can give, I have a feeling that we will never give. Uh, I have witnessed something that's true almost of everyone. Uh, When our salary increases, we simply bump up our lifestyle, and then it seems difficult to give again. I'm going to argue that uh, we start by giving wherever we are at. Uh, We give proportionally, and that will form a pattern for us throughout our lifetime. And so, uh, you know, we never say to ourselves, it's too hard to give. Uh, Giving becomes the joy of our lives, and it really does become deeply enriching if we give ourselves to that. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Are you a visual learner? Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has a weekly video series? All videos, past and current, are easily accessible on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. Our Bible teaching videos cover a wide variety of biblical topics, giving you access to insights that provide you with a deeper understanding of the God of the Bible and the life He calls you to live. Check out this week's video Bible teaching program featuring Dr. John Newfeld. And be sure to never miss an episode, so subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca.